Well, good evening. Today we're going to continue our conversation on the sacraments. And today we're going to talk about the sacraments at the service of communion. These are probably the least recognizable in terms of that title because usually we won't speak of them in that way. And so the sacraments that are at the service of communion are the sacraments of marriage and the sacraments of holy order. These sacraments are directed towards the salvation of others. Both consecrate the individual for a mission to build up the body of Christ. In, in the holy orders, we see this very clearly in our priests who are called to bring people to Christ through their ministry. But this should be just as obvious in marriage that this communion of persons ordered in love to build up the body of Christ in a family, which is called to nurture and educate their children in the faith, to bring up children who are believers and strong in their faith and life. Many might say that these sacraments don't have a lot in common, that the priesthood and matrimony, in fact, they're actually, as John Paul would say, John Paul II would say, they're different sides of the same coin. Both are ordered to God as their destiny, but in different ways. And so if we look at the similarities of the sacraments, we can see that, that both um, have a definitive presence in history. Marriage was actually given to us in Genesis. Now, not as a sacrament, um, we'll see that in Matthew 19 for marriage, um, but so too the priesthood, that the priesthood has always been a reality in the life of Jewish history. Both of these sacraments are given by Christ, and so we'll talk about those. And actually, we've already talked about the holy orders, that they were actually, holy orders was actually instituted in John 20, when Jesus came into the upper room, and he said to his apostles, receive the Holy Spirit, and he breathed on them. And that's when he ordained them. Of course, marriage is given um, by Christ as a sacrament in Matthew 19. He raises the level of marriage to a sacrament in Matthew 19 when he has his discussion with the Pharisees about divorce. Both of these sacraments are a call. You're either called to marriage or you're called to religious life, called to holy orders. And so there's a discernment involved in both of these sacraments. Both are vowed. In holy orders, priests make promises. They promise to be chaste, to be obedient. Um, they're called to actually live some level of poverty because they really don't own very much. Same too with marriage. Couples who enter into marriage are, are called to give themselves to one another faithfully and freely and, and to be open to new life, to be fruitful. And so both the priesthood and the married state are about giving themselves a gift of self. Both of these sacraments have the same destiny because all of the, the vocations really are ways to the Father. And so the destiny for both a married couple as well as for a priest or a religious, the destiny is the same. And, and that destiny, of course, is, is Jesus Christ. Both of these sacraments call an individual to parenthood. So yes, the priesthood 
we call our priest father, right? And that's for a particular reason, because they, in fact, become our spiritual fathers. And then certainly in marriage, couples are called to be open to life. And so both of these sacraments are called to give of themselves in totality, to be fruitful, to be faithful, um, and for this gift of self to be forever, at least in this lifetime. And both of these sacraments um, require grace to be given to the individual who enters into them um, so that they can have the capacity to live them out well. So, so that's a great question for a quiz. What are, how, how are these sacraments similar to one another, right? How are they similar? So before embarking too deeply into the subject matter at hand, I think it's important for us to discuss more deeply two foundational concepts that are critical to the sacraments of marriage and holy orders. One involves God's plan and the other authentic love. Both of these sacraments include intimately these reality. Both involve God's plan for the individual and authentic love. The love of God's, which is always authentic. We are only able to love authentically because he loved us first. In terms of marriage, we believe that the sacrament of creation is with us from the beginning. Although we don't understand it as a sacrament in the sense that we do after Christ comes, it's clear that marriage is the visible expression of God's love for man from the beginning. It is, as John Paul II would say the primordial sacrament, that marriage is the primordial sacrament, that Eve was from the very moment of her creation made to be a helper for Adam and Adam for Eve towards their destiny, who is God. The second concept, which is important, um, is the understanding of authentic love. And this deeply impacts the living out of both of these sacraments at the service of communion. Without a love which is authentic, a love rooted in Christ, neither vocation would be possible to live out in the way that's intended by our Lord. So I want to have a conversation a little bit about authentic love. And so I've got on your slide um, the three different types of love. We have agape, eros, and philia love. Now these of course are in the Greek because in English we only have one word for love. And so we say things like, I love my dog, I love joy, I love shopping. And then I say, I love you, honey. And we hope that there's a little bit of a difference in those definitions of love, right? And so it's, it's more precise to talk about love using the Greek because there are definitive definitions for the different types of love that are listed here. So I want to start with philia love. Philia love um, is a love of friendship, really. It's, it's kind of a friendship love. So it, it usually does not involve sexual love. It's a love of filiation, if you will. So like it's a love I have for a brother or a sister, child. It's, it's good. It's given. It's intimate. But it's not sexual filial love, a love of filiation. And it's intimate in this sense, you know, that, um, you know, even if I don't like a sibling very much, I still love them. Like I have a loyalty towards them. A child that is adopted still has this 
kind of desire to know who their birth parents were, even if their parents from the beginning have been amazing. Um, and so filial love is, is given. It's something that's innate to us. Um, we don't choose it. It just is. Eros love is good. It's given. It's intimate. And it can include sexual love. Eros love is problematic in that it must grow. Eros love is self-directed, self-centered. And so it's really on the level of feelings or sensuality. And so Eros is good. I mean, without Eros, we don't have marriage, right? You have to have desire in order to be drawn into a friendship and then a relationship which calls you to the marital covenant. So Eros is good, it's given, it's intimate, and it can include sexual love, but it needs to grow, okay? So Eros love is self-centered. Agape love is the love that we're called to. It's the love of the gospels. It's how God loves us. Agape love is benevolent love. It's other-centered love. It's a love that says this, I love you because it's good for you to be loved by me. To love as an agape love is to will the good of the other as other without any kind of thought that I'm going to get anything in return. I just will your good. And the highest good, of course, is, is heaven, union with God, our destiny. So how do we get to agape love? Well, um, there's, there's a movement of love, and that's what I've listed below. There's a movement of love towards agape love. There's the three movements are sensuality, feelings and emotions, and then moving into friendship and then betrothed love, loving the other as God loves. So let's cover each of these movements towards agape love. Sensuality is kind of that first level of love. And, and sensuality is a desire. It's, it's a good, right? It's, it's, it's definitely eros love. It's definitely self-centered. It's definitely based in feelings. Um, sensuality is blind to the full dimensions of the other. So in sensuality, I just usually see one dimension, and it's the dimension to which I'm attracted, okay? So sensuality isn't bad in and of itself, but sensuality by itself can't get us to where we really want to go because the deepest desire of our hearts is to love authentically, to give ourselves away. And so sensuality is that first movement of love, but it only sees one dimension of the person and that value that is normally seen is, is usually the sexual value because it's the one to which we are attracted and so sensuality by itself can never get us to where we want to go and if we just stay in sensuality we lead to things like we get led to things like pornography or we we get led to things like uh, promiscuity because we're staying on on a, a very superficial level and it's so important for, for young people to understand that, you know, moving forward um, with a relationship when you don't know who you're in relationship with can be devastating to the person. 
Because if we just move forward with the physical aspect of a relationship without knowing the, the totality of the person, what happens oftentimes is six months later we say, who are you that I'm intimately you know, involved with physically? I don't even know who you are because we didn't take the time to get to know another. And this causes um, great harm um, to one another, to our hearts, to our, our minds, to our ability to trust. And so it is so important for, for young people particularly to take things slow when they enter into this movement of sensuality. Now, if, if, if couples take their time, right, sensuality is going to grow and move into the next dimension of love, which is feelings and emotions. Feelings and emotions are powerful, right? It's, it's when you begin to share the other person's world. Now, you're still in eros love, so you're still thinking about self first. But eros is a place we need to go. We need to move from sensuality, just that superficiality, to now sharing feelings and emotions, sharing likes and dislikes, activities. But love is not merely a feeling, right? Love is is something more. Love is an act of the will. And so feelings need to grow into something that is more like friendship. And so feelings by ourselves is not love. Love is patient. Love is kind. Love is generous. So love is not merely a feeling. Although feelings are important, love is not merely a feeling. And so what is love then? How do we get to agape love? Well, we begin to share one another's feelings. We begin to share the other person's world. And then ultimately we move into the realm of friendship. And friendship is, is when we, we begin to will the good of the other as other. That's what friendship, Jesus says friendship is, is being willing to lay down one's life for the other. I mean, that's not just merely sharing likes and dislikes or values, right? That's, that's actually putting the other person's welfare before your own. That's what friendship calls us to. Willing the good of the other as other and recognizing that the highest good is union with God, which means holiness. So if I truly love someone, do I really want to put their holiness at risk, their eternal destiny at risk by asking them to participate in something like premarital sex or cohabitation or pornography or anything? that would move that person away from what they're called to as, as a Christian. To put them at risk for an unplanned pregnancy outside of marriage? To put them at risk for a sexually transmitted disease? Is that willing the good of another? No, I think that's still Eros love. That's putting your own needs and wants first. That's not authentic love. Now, there are two dimensions to the highest level of love. There is that friendship. And Augustine always would say that friendship is really the basis for a great marriage. Like if you're marrying your best friend, that's a gift. Um, and so friendship is the first kind of movement into agape love. But the highest level of love is what St. Pope John Paul II calls betrothed love. 
betrothed love. And betrothed love is what St. Paul speaks of in his letter to the Ephesians. When he says, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. How did Christ love the church? Well, he laid down his life for the church. And then he says to wives, wives, be obedient to your husbands and do so out of love for Christ. And so both husband and wife are called to be mutually subordinate, not one lording it over the other, but both laying down their lives for the others, both putting the other before themselves. And so authentic love in marriage looks like this. You first. No, you first. No, you first. That's what betrothed love is all about. It's about a mutual subordination, a willing of the good for the other. And so from the very beginning, God has really laid down this entire framework for marriage. And he does so in Genesis 2. Jesus elevates this sacrament of creation to a sacrament of the church in Matthew 19 in his dialogue with the Pharisees. He tells the Pharisees when they come to speak to him about whether or not they can divorce their wives. He says, you know, Moses only allowed you to divorce your wives because of the hardness of your hearts, because of sin. And then Jesus says a really important thing. He says, in the beginning, it was not so. And then he says it a second time. In the beginning, a man shall leave his mother and father, cling to his wife. The two shall become one. And then he says a very important thing from moral theology. He says, let no man separate what God has joined. And then he says for a third time, in the beginning, it was not so. And so I think Jesus is telling us in this conversation with the Pharisees that God had an original plan for man and woman from the very beginning for them to love one another as God loves them. That marriage has always been at the center of God's plan for man and woman because it is, it is a direct pathway to the Father. Because in giving themselves to one another, they become like God. That's what marriage does. Marriage calls for you to place your husband or your wife before your own needs. And in doing so, you become holier. Marriage calls you to a love that's greater than the love that you have heretofore experienced. And then when you have children, you're called to even be more selfless because that's what love calls us to. It calls us to sacrifice. And that sacrifice, which we willingly give because it is from a heart with authentic love, we are we are sanctified in that sacrifice. What does sanctification mean? It means to be made holy. And so marriage makes individuals holy if they live it out in the way that they're called to live it. And so when a couple says, I do to one another, 
Christ says I do to their love. If everything that's supposed to be there is there, Christ says I do to their love. He seals their love with his own. So when a couple says I do to one another, something new exists that wasn't there before. And that something is God's I do to their love. And so he provides to them in their I do a bond. And that bond is his love. They now have his love, which gives them the power to love each other in a way that they couldn't otherwise because they're given through the sacrament of marriage the power to love. We see this, this meaning and purpose in Genesis 1 and 2. I think I've spoken to you a little bit about this. In Genesis 1 and 2, we see God's original meaning for man and woman, right? So in Genesis 1, we see that God has really placed man as man and woman at the as the crown of his creation, right? He creates all of the universe and he says this is good. But then he creates man and woman in the image and likeness of God. We're the only creatures that God has created that way. So Genesis 1 tells us that we're different from the animals. We're different from the rest of creation because we're like God. We're given a memory, an intellect, a will, the capacity to choose from the very beginning. We are like God. So we're different from creation. And so who is God? Well, God is a communion of persons. He's a communion of love, right? That's the Trinitarian reality of God. And God says in Genesis 1.27, in the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. So the fullness of the image and likeness of God in Genesis 1 is man and woman together. Why is that? Because God is a communion of persons. The Father gives everything he is to the Son. The Son receives everything that the Father is. And the abundance of their love is so real that it's personified in the person of the Holy Spirit. Listen to what happens in marriage. A man gives everything he is to his wife. His wife receives everything that he is. And their love is so concrete, it's so real that sometimes, nine months later, they gotta give that something a name. That's how the married couple is like God. They bring their two two humanities together and then God blesses them in their union with the gift of a child. It's a beautiful story and it's the reality of married couples, right? The reality of married life. And so Genesis 1 tells us that we're made for God. He's made us like himself for himself. And so that's what original solitude points to. Original solitude means not, it doesn't mean loneliness. It means we're made for God. We're different from the rest of creation. That's what original solitude means. Original unity um, means that we're made for love. And that's what Genesis 2 tells us. See, in Genesis 2, God places man in the garden and he says something's not quite right here. And that something is that man has no one like himself 
to give himself to. Man is alone. And God says it's not good that man is alone because man is made like God. To, to be a communion of persons, to be a communion of love like God is. And so in Genesis 2, when he places man in the garden by himself, he says it's not good that man is alone. And so he puts man to sleep. And he does so to make it clear to Adam and you and I as we reread these beautiful scripture passages. He wants to make sure that we know that there's no hint of domination here, that Adam is not meant to lord it over Eve, that they are equal in dignity, that Eve is as much a subject of God's love as is Adam, never an object to be used or manipulated or instrumentalized. And so He takes the rib of Adam and he builds up Eve. So they're made of the same stuff. They are equal in dignity, but they're not the same. If they were the same, they could never come together as one flesh. And so when, when God the Father creates Eve, he then presents the bride to the bridegroom. And, and Adam is very pleased. He says, at last, bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh, finally someone with whom I can share my world. So finally, Adam has someone to offer his work to, to share his journey, his joys. You see, what happens in Genesis 2 is that Adam is recreated in the creation of Eve. That's what love does. Love changes us. Love transforms us. You know, if you've ever fallen in love with someone, just think about it. Your life circumstances probably didn't change, but everything was different. The sun shone a little brighter. It was easier to go to work. It was easier to deal with your, your parents or your issues because now you have somebody to share them with, right? You're not going it alone. Love transforms. God is love. And marriage is a pathway to the Father. Eve is a helper for Adam to reach his destiny, who is God. And then, of course, God in Genesis 2 says the same thing that Jesus said in Matthew 19. He says, a man shall leave his mother and father, cling to his wife, the two shall become one. And then God blesses them and gives them the first commandment in Genesis 2, and that is to be fruitful and multiply. And then Adam and Eve are said to be naked and unashamed. And this is where we see authentic love being lived out in the garden, because Adam and Eve are naked and unashamed. It doesn't mean they're comfortable without their clothes on. It just means that they're able to see each other as God sees them. They can see that they're a gift for one another. And so this gift has come from the Father who's given them everything, so they need to revere this gift. They need to love this gift the way the Father has first loved them. And so that's what it means by original solitude, that we're made for God. Our destiny is Him. Our spouse is not our, our destiny. Our spouse is our helper towards our destiny. So original solitude says this is what, what our destiny is. We're made for God. We're different from the rest of creation. We're like God. Original unity says that our purpose is love. And so original unity helps us to get to God. So original, original solitude fulfills original, unit, uh, original solitude. I'll say that again. Original unity 
fulfills original solitude because it's in becoming a couple that we move towards our destiny who is God. So original unity fulfills original solitude. Original innocence in the garden was being able to, to see one another as a gift and therefore treat one another in that way. The problem is that sin changed all of that, right? And so, um, so it's become a task to love well because sin, sin does not make us more human. Sin actually dehumanizes us. Sin takes away our capacity to love well. And so our purpose in life is to become holy, to be capacitated to fully love as we're called to love. So marriage, God is telling us, marriage, God is the author of. The state didn't create marriage, right? We didn't create marriage. God created marriage. God is the author of marriage. And man's vocation to marriage is written into the very nature of man and woman. How we're made shows that man and woman are meant to be together. Why? Because we're able to become one flesh and that one flesh union is ordered to something greater than ourselves, namely the gift of a child. It, has, it is well known that the well-being of society and the individual is closely tied to the well-being of marriage. If individuals are holy and they come together in a holy marriage, then that marriage is going to become the bedrock for that holy society. And if that society is holy because of the holy marriages, then it's going to lead to a holy nation. And a holy nation is going to lead to a holy world, which is what we're called to create, this civilization of love. And so the purpose of all of us, regardless mm -hmm. of our vocation, is a call to love. The image of the love of God is found in the mutual love of the spouses. It's an unbreakable union because of the presence of God. Man and woman in marriage in a sacramental marriage, both baptized Christians who come together in marriage, it's an unbreakable bond, not because of the couples I do, but because of the I do that Christ gave to them in their marital union. And so even though the couples may walk away from one another, God will never walk away. God will never walk away. Now, the sacramental... The sacramentality of marriage, as I mentioned, is given to us um, in Matthew 19. But we were given signs of this primacy of marriage throughout the whole story of salvation history. Look, the first book of the Bible, we see the first marriage, marriage of Adam and Eve. Then throughout the Old Testament story, God's people and God's relationship is actually compared to that of a marriage. We hear things from the prophets and in the Psalms like, your husband is your maker. And so God's relationship to Israel is often compared to a relationship between a husband and wife because God wants our relationship to be intimate. He wants it to be personal. 
He wants to be involved in every aspect of our lives, just like a husband is involved in every aspect of his wife's life and a wife and her husband's. So again, God prepares us for this. The first miracle was a miracle done at the wedding feast of Cana. Again, this is not just a coincidence. God uses our experience to tell him that these are the most important things in our lives. And then finally, of course, in the book of Revelation, we hear about the wedding feast of the Lamb to which we're all called to, to which we are all um, meant to be saved in. Now, the sign, what's the visible sign of marriage? Well, everybody always says the ring, and it's not, okay? So the visible sign is not the ring. You must know that the visible sign of the sacrament of marriage is the couple. The couple is the sign of the sacrament, and the couple is also the ministers of the sacrament. So what's the visible sign of the couple? What is a visible sign of, the, of what invisible reality? Well, the couple is a visible sign of the invisible reality of Christ's love for the church. So the visible sign is the couple. So when we look at a couple in marriage, we should be able to say, if they're living out their marriage well, that's how Christ loved the church. So every married couple is called to be a visible sign of Christ's love for the church. The couple themselves are the ministers of the sacrament. The priest is just a witness of the sacrament. The couple are the ministers of the sacrament because they're the only ones that can solidify their union in consummation, right? So they say, I do. And then when they go home and they celebrate their honeymoon, they come together in bodily union. And that is the consummation of their vows. When any two baptized Christians come together in marriage, they have a sacramental marriage. And the Catholic Church recognizes that. So if a, if a married couple comes to us and says, we want to become Catholic, but we got married in the Episcopalian Church or we got married in the Methodist Church, we don't have them get remarried. Because we believe that the sacrament of marriage, if you're a baptized Christian, everyone's called to the same thing. Everyone's called to give themselves totally, to give themselves faithfully, to give themselves fruitfully, and to give themselves freely. Now, the grace that's given in marriage um, is a grace um, that capacitates couples to love one another as Christ loved the church. And, and St. Paul talks about this in his letter to the Ephesians in chapter five. You know, he says, this is a great mystery. Um, and it, it, it's, it, it's revolved around, you know, Christ's love for the church. And it, it's, it's analogous to a husband and wife in marriage. And that's why the couple is the visible sign of that invisible reality of Christ's love for the church. So how is the sacrament of marriage celebrated? Well, it's always celebrated in a liturgy. Um, it's, it's a reminder to us that Christ gave his body for us. And that's what a husband and wife do in marriage. They give everything that they are to one another. And so the spouses and Christ form one body in Christ. And so, um, so this is very beautiful. You know, that Christ is with the spouses in the sacrament. 
The celebration takes place in a liturgy because there's a deep and abiding connection of the Paschal mystery, that is Christ's suffering, death, resurrection, and ascension, to all the sacraments. But it is in the Eucharist that Christ is united to his bride, the church, for whom he gave himself up, up for. That is why marriage is celebrated in the liturgy, because marriage is an image of this mutual self-donation. In the Eucharist, the memorial of the new covenant is realized in which Christ has united himself forever through the church to his beloved bride for whom he gave himself up for. The bride and the bridegroom unite themselves to Christ's sacrifice made present in the mass and form one body in Christ. So when the couple says, I do to one another, God says, I do to them and seals their love with his love. This is an unbreakable union. This is a union in Christ. Preparation for this great sacrament begins in your home with the modeling of your parents. And then we too become the models for our children. The greatest gift you can give your children is the gift of your love to one another. And so the couple becomes the domestic church, the little church, and they're called to witness in the domestic church the love that they first received from the Father. And so it's in the domestic church that we should be teaching our kids how to pray. It's in the domestic church that we should be teaching them to be of service to the community. It's in the domestic church that we should be teaching the preciousness of life. It's, it's in the domestic church that we should be teaching our kids how important it is to be of service to the church in multiple ways. Okay, so let's talk a little bit about the sacrament of holy orders. The priesthood is not a new invention by the church. The priesthood came about through the people of God, Israel, and it emerged through the tribe of Levi. See, the Levitical priesthood is where the priesthood came from. And so the priesthood came about through the people of God, Israel, and emerged through the tribe of Levi, one of the 12 tribes of Israel. The tribe of Levi was called to liturgical service in Israel, the offering of sacrifice to atone for sin. The priesthood was, of course, powerless to bring about salvation. It was a sacrifice that had to be repeated again and again. And it was unable to achieve the definitive sanctification of the people until Christ came. The priesthood of the old covenant finds its fulfillment in the priesthood of Jesus Christ. Finally, we have one high priest who is able to make the one true sacrifice which provides for our redemption. It is now up to us to receive the offering that is made. So in this salvific reality of Christ sacrificed, we only have one true priest, and this one high priest is Christ. So all of the other priests that we come to know in our lives, they're his ministers. Christ is the source of the priesthood. It is in and through Christ that the sacraments are given and received. The priest of the new covenant then acts in the person of Christ. So the action depends entirely on Christ, not on the holiness of the individual priest. 
Christ communicates a sacred power to the priest. The priest is forever changed in his ordination. He is marked with an indelible spiritual mark. He's a priest forever, even if he leaves the priesthood. I also want to just reiterate what I just said. So if a priest is, is, is not a very holy priest, like you know that this priest maybe drinks too much, he curses too much, and then he goes and he offers mass, and we all receive the Eucharist. That Eucharist is valid, not because of the holiness of the priest or the lack of the holiness of that priest. That sacrament is valid because the priest intends to do what Christ did. He does it in the way Christ told him to do it. And so that sacrament is valid. And so I also want you to kind of remember too that the, the priesthood then is, is an is a indelible spiritual mark is given to the priest. So there's three sacraments that we've talked about thus far that have this indelible spiritual mark. The first is baptism, the second is confirmation, and the third is the priesthood. That's a great quiz question, okay. So how do we celebrate the sacrament of holy orders? Well, it's sacrament, it, it's, it's celebrated in the liturgy. All the people of God are called together when a priest is ordained. The priesthood of Jesus Christ is a priesthood which includes only baptized men. And that is not because Jesus doesn't like women, <laughs> but it's because that's what Jesus did. And so, we can't undo the way Christ instituted the sacrament. And so Christ did not call women to holy orders. Now he called women to a lot of things. He did things with women that were not done in those times. He traveled with women. Women supported his ministry. He spoke to women about who he was. Remember the woman at the well. Remember the Samaritan woman. He told these people who he was. Most men, if they weren't married to a woman, didn't speak to women. But Jesus invited them into his ministry. He valued women. He told them the deepest mysteries of his life and the life of the world. And yet, he didn't call women to the priesthood. He calls women to a vocation of holiness, which is very different from the vocation of holiness that a man is called to. And that should not surprise us. We are different. We have different gifts. And so it is only baptized men that are called in to the vocation of the priesthood. If you think about what the priesthood is, the priesthood is, is to be the bridegroom. Jesus is called the bridegroom. He's, he's called the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And, and a sacrament is a visible sign. And so a woman really doesn't fulfill that very well. If, if the priesthood is about the one high priest who is Christ, who became a man in his humanity, then it makes sense that this visible sign could never be a woman. That's confusing. Right? That doesn't remind us of what that invisible reality really is. And that invisible reality, of course, is Christ himself. Now, all priests are priests. And I mean that in this sense, that a bishop 
is a priest, right? Um, the difference um, between a bishop who is a priest and a priest who is also a priest is that a bishop holds what we call the fullness of the priesthood. So we would consider the 11 dis disciples, the 11 apostles, to be bishops. Like they were like, they had the fullness of holy orders. And then they appointed co-workers in Christ. They appointed presbyters and deacons to assist them. And so those helpers can't do certain things that the bishop can do. So the bishop is the one who can perform all of the sacraments. So it is only the bishop that can ordain priests to the priesthood. That's the fullness of orders. So that the only thing a priest can't do really is to ordain. Most of the time, the bishop is the, um, is the minister of confirmation, but the bishop can give faculties to a priest to administer confirmation, and he often does because there's not as many bishops as there are priests. And so the bishop holds the fullness of the priesthood, the priest comes next, and then the deacon is really the servant, again, of the bishop and the priest, in that he assists the widows, the orphans, he can baptize, he can marry, but he cannot do the sacraments of healing and he cannot um, do confirmation. How is holy orders actually performed? Well, there's a laying on of hands by the bishop to the man who is baptized and holy orders is given. The bishop does it because if you think about it, that the 12 were our first bishops, or the, excuse me, the 11 were our first bishops. And then over time, as they laid hands on other men, then the priesthood gets passed down through all these 2000 years. And so our Cardinal DiNardo has been touched by a bishop who has been touched by a bishop who has been touched by a bishop who has been touched by the person of Jesus Christ in the upper room. And so there is this unbroken line of ordination that comes to us from the very beginning. And that's why when we talk about churches that have separated from the Catholic Church that still have Eucharist, well, it's not the Eucharist that Christ gave because there is not an unbroken line from their bishop to their priests. And so when they have communion, it is a sign, but it does not participate in the true presence of Jesus Christ. And so as Catholics, we do not receive communion in churches that are not Catholic. That would be not receiving what the sign actually portrays. That's why we don't allow open communion in our churches because we need to be prepared to receive the Lord in his fullness. And if someone doesn't believe that the true presence of Christ is given in the Eucharist, then they would be, as St. Paul says, unworthily receiving the Lord in the Eucharist. And so how do you become worthy? Well, you're never worthy to receive the Eucharist, but you can become formed in the reception of Eucharist. And so if someone wants to receive the Eucharist, then they need to be taught 
and formed in the Catholic faith, and that's what our CIA is all about. They learn about the tenets of the faith, and they are formed in those tenets. And now when they receive communion, they can say amen to the Eucharist, which is not just amen, I believe that the Eucharist is the body, blood, soul, and divinity of Jesus, but it's amen. I believe everything the Catholic Church teaches and believes um, to be revealed by God. And so when we receive communion, we're not just receiving the Lord, we are also in communion with everyone else in the church. And so again, um, just to close, matrimony and holy orders are similar in this fact. They're both called, they're both called to be a total gift of self to their spouse, the church, or their spouse, another person. They're called to be faithful to that vocation. They're called to be fruitful. And a priest is fruitful in becoming a spiritual father to the baptized. Both make promises. Both provide a gift of self. Both provide parenthood. Both are fruitful in Christ. Both are called to be church. The couple to be the domestic church for their kids and the priest to be the voice of the church for Jesus Christ. Matrimony was instituted by Christ in Matthew 19 and holy orders was instituted by Christ first at the Last Supper and then in John 20. Both are a call, both are a vocation, and both call for subordination to a greater love for the good of the other. And so in closing, you know, I really want you to understand deeply um, what both of these sacraments provide to us, how they were instituted, who can perform them, what they call the person to, um, and the graces that are given as a result. God bless.